Jade carves slowly. It's a rock. You got to carve it slowly. You're working subtractively, so you take it away. You can't put it back, so you don't make any mistakes. Or you try not to make mistakes. Or if you think you might have a mistake, you need a plan for recovering. Otherwise, you have a hole where there's not supposed to be. It looks like it. But if you have three holes, they look balanced, so it looks like it's supposed to be there. What do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with your life? Understandably, a tough question for any 20-something to answer. So join me, your host, Taylor Marks of the Rise Year Podcast, as I talk with some cool people about what they do and occasionally go on long rants of my own about the pains of growing up. Today's guest is artist Mark Zorinsky. Denver, Colorado, been here for a long time. Originally from New York, came to Colorado to go to college. Um, currently retired working as an artist. Awesome. Okay, so looking at your, I guess we'll kind of start with your professional background first a little bit and then kind of weed our way into like art, even though art's kind of been in your life for seems like your whole life but so you graduated from college and then you you know you started your own company so what was the initial desire to to start your own companies and then you know eventually go on to start multiples of them oh gee i started my my first ventures gee when i was a kid you know selling rocks or whatever and then once i got to college i always had different little ventures going uh, most of them unsuccessful, but I tried. When I graduated college, uh, I graduated with an, as an, enge- an engineering degree. The microcomputer business was just starting. I graduated in 1983. The Apple II computer had come out just a few years previously. And uh, so I was able to get a, a contract with the entry systems division of IBM. They were working on this oddball project called the personal computer that nobody knew what to do with. And... I went down in Austin, Texas and helped work on some unsuccessful projects so they knew what not to do, amongst many other things. But I'd always had it in my mind to be self-employed. I come from a long line of entrepreneurs, father self-employed, grandfather self-employed, on back through through time. So. So how do you think, how did that like carry over, like as you kept going? So, you know, you started Z-Tech, but then your longest running one, which I guess up until 2019, if I'm correct, was, is it pronounced P-Med or P-E-Med or how do you pronounce it? Sure, both ways, yeah. What was the intention there with running that one and, and keeping, did that one go on so long because it was successful and like you kind of learn from your prior mistakes and, and shortcomings in running several other businesses? Sure. There used to be a statistic that the average entrepreneur has 3.6 businesses before you hit the, the successful one. I'm not exactly sure what a 0.6 of a business is, but in any case, you, you try stuff and then it doesn't always work out. You know, with a, a business you have dollars in, you have dollars out, employees, who to sell to, who not to sell to, on what terms, what markets, where do you want to concentrate your efforts? Is your idea any better than anybody else's? If so, 
Yes, and how do you keep that happening? If not, then well, how do you make it better? Or how do you handle it through sales or marketing or pricing? So as he met, sure, that was my, I think it might've been my fifth company. I probably had about 45 ventures, maybe 50 at this point. I'm not exactly sure how many. And some of them, you know, you throw it against the wall, see if it sticks. You make one of these and you go, hey, do you want to buy one of these? And people go, no. Okay, so that venture goes away. And then, or you try, you know, you want one of these, you know, well, what can you do with it? Well, you put stuff in it. No, we don't want that. Okay, and then you try something else. Hey, you want one of those. Well, what can you do? Well, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, sure, we'll take one of those. And then you have it, then, then you have an idea that you're selling a little bit of, and then if that starts to build, then it can become a business. I sold used medical equipment in, about 110 countries, entirely internet-based. Started off first web first web page. I think we started in 1996, which I guess is ancient history by now um, <laughs> in terms of internet years. But yeah, it was uh, it, it, early on, and it worked. It worked great. What was the? I can keep talking. So yeah, well, I'll ask you a question about where did you get the idea to start this business in particular? Well, my previous company, which was a computer manufacturing company called Zerco, managed to equip the entire product line and by doing buyouts from companies of, of the equipment we needed to manufacture the products and, and you know, all the prototyping stuff. And we actually got a computer product on the market from scratch, prototyped, running and into production for, as I remember, about 3000 bucks which would be more or less about 12 grand today. In today's dollars might be 10 grand, which was nothing. I mean, at that time, you know, most people were like, well, no, you need your budget should be double it and add a zero. I'm like, no, 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 we're just, anyway. So I got pretty good at sourcing things for no money. And that carried over into the medical business. When I started that company, somebody needed an IV pole. Well, I knew what that was. I found an IV pole. How about an exam table? Well, I kind of knew what that was, you know. Okay, here's an exam table. Well, we need an x-ray. What's an x-ray? You know, well, we need surgical equipment. What's surgical equipment? So I, long story short, didn't really know what a surgery room looked like. So I actually got gowned up and went and observed three or four surgical procedures. The deal was I didn't necessarily have to not pass out, just not hit anything important on the way down. So they kept me in a corner. And then toward the end of one procedure, they were like, hey, come over here, hold this, you know, and I was like, no, 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 I don't, you know, but at least I knew what um, the surgical equipment looked like. And then I learned to sell that equipment one time selling or multiple times selling pieces to, you know, people who knew more, much more about medicine, hopefully than I did. And then one conversation that stands out of selling a neurosurgical microscope for brain surgery to a neurosurgeon. And he asked me, you know, a fairly long technical question about 25 seconds. And, and, I, and I answered, well, I thought about it. I'm like, well, my degree's in mining engineering. Do you really want me to answer that? <laughs> for a few moments. Yeah, probably not. And then it went on and sold the microscope. He needed to know, but I just wasn't, he needed to know the answer to his question. I just wasn't the guy to answer it for him. So. Hmm. Yeah. But I can keep, again, direct me, point me in a direction. I can keep talking much longer than an hour. So. Yeah, so I guess to kind of carry into your art, how has running these companies impacted your art? If so, if not, totally, totally cool. And if you want to dive into that, that'd be awesome. But like, what have you seen any comparisons or anything like that over the course of the years? Oh, sure. 
I, I got my first gem cutting equipment probably when I was seven years old, you know, age appropriate kid stuff. And then as time passed, I got much more sophisticated equipment. Uh, first uh, real gem cutting equipment, I would say when I was probably 11 years old, sold a few gemstones when I was 13 or 14. When You know, when you're a kid, you can get away with a lot. People will buy it just because you're a kid. A box here, sure. But that brought me into... Uh, Gem cutting got me interested in the technical field of geology, which then morphed into mining engineering, which then led to an engineering school. And once you have an engineering training, you can understand many, many different fields, even if you don't know the specifics. One of the things I learned gem cutting early is that there's a difference between art as a hobby and art as a business. One of the things you do in a business, you pick your market. What are we going to sell, you know, tape or eyeglass cases or, you know, these, which one's got the larger dollar potential? You know, I have no idea what this costs to manufacture, but, you know, that probably more than that, right? So in a business, the dollars in has to equal or be greater than the dollars out. That's just the nature of a business. Everything else is secondary. And you need it. Yes, you need an idea. Yes, you need to be devoted to your cause and all, all of the other cliches that you hear commonly. But still, at the end of the day, the money in has to be greater than the money out. And I think it probably took me maybe 15 years and three companies to kind of learn that. So uh, a business versus a hobby. That's how to distinguish, you know, art as a business versus art as a hobby. I'm going to flip viewpoints now and we'll go from the pure artistic viewpoint. What are your artistic influences? Now I work, my subject material for the most part is abstract geometrical sculptures that are suggestive of natural form. Many influences of that natural form from the mineral world, from mineral crystals, from gemstones, and also from biological structures. Uh, in 20 plus years of selling hospital stuff and to physicians and neurosurgeons and all this. I got exposed to quite a few different biological structures, mostly indirect looking at photographs, occasionally direct looking at the specimen, you know, in your hand or on the table, whatever, on the surgery table. And I guess I've kind of absorbed that. And some of that's coming, spilling out now in, into my artwork. When I was younger and in my teens and twenties, certainly it's a little harder to distinguish a hobby versus a business. And then by the time you hit 35 and you realize like, okay, yeah, I got to have some money because I got to pay bills and kids and, you know, I'll, I'll pay the car insurance and all the things that we spend money on. It becomes a little easier to say, yeah, that's, that's not going to work from a business point of view. So I'm going to do something else. And now that I'm um, older and I'm selling artwork, I actually know it, it's, you know, okay, I don't need to make a ton of money, but I need to make a little and in, in, in a strange way that really helps the artwork. Hmm. Having that, that external pool of maybe, does it help in the sense of constantly creating or is it like working on making this vision come to life and then trying to sell it? Well, both really. Um, and uh, somewhere along the way, I learned rather than presenting something as my vision of a particular topic. I tried that early on. What I'm trying to do artistically now is to stimulate the viewers thinking on what their own vision is. One of my favorite questions is to ask, well, what do you see? I have abstract pieces, so there's no right or wrong answer. 
And that's the most interesting thing is, is, is stimulating somebody else's vision. I, I have a couple of pieces that are, that are literal. I have a, an interpretation of the American flag. You know, if somebody doesn't really see the American flag, well, I can't really help them with the flag. You know, it's not really too much to interpret, but yeah, so. So how do you, as the artist, like you're not in other people's shoes, so how do you place yourself in their shoes and, and try and think about it from their perspective when you're building it? Oh, I'm not really sure. I, I would imagine just by understanding form and working with the basic form. Um, you know, if I was to show you a picture of a, a tree structure without much detail, well, it could be a tree or it could be an aerial photograph of a stream or it could be veins in your arm or it could be uh, a fern that's been dried out and laying on the pavement, or it could be a number of things. So, you know, if you put, if you make it look red with veins, people are gonna see veins. You know, if you just, if you leave it abstract, well, you've got four possible forms there. And there's more, but I mean, that's just a simple, uh, so try and focus on the basic form and, and not get things too complicated. So. Hmm. And then when you're, when you're actually creating, what's your process from, the idea inception, do you come in with a specific idea of what you're going to create? Or do you come in with like the notion of you're inspired by, I don't know, something you saw on the street and then something you read in a book or, or something and trying to figure out how to mesh those and then like the actual building and then the selling or, or how does that work? I, I get asked that a lot. And, and the answer is, yeah, any or all of the above. And it can take anywhere, a design idea can take anywhere from 10 minutes to, you know, 30 years. Some, some of the stuff that's been percolating. I mean, I don't sit there for 30 years, you know, <laughs> focused on, <laughs> I mean, but, you know, you, 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 an idea will occur to you and maybe it's something you thought about for a few seconds and you put it away and you kind of, it pops in your head a, a day or a minute or, you know, a decade later. And then as an artist, I've, trained myself now to keep a sketchbook to if I have an idea sketch it or if I have a random thought a geometrical thought not you know random thought about politics or whatever but the the, re the relevant stuff to my artwork I, I write those down because I'll think of the stuff and then it's forgotten are you creating I have a sketchbook yeah. filled with ideas and designs that's my handwriting but probably one third of them I don't remember actually writing down. I mean, it, it looks like something I would have designed and this, the idea looks good, but you know, it's my handwriting, especially stuff from three or 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I don't know. Who knows? Are you creating every day? Like, do you have a set time that you get started or are you kind of like when the idea comes or when you need to work on something, that's when you choose to do it? Both. Uh, if you know, life gets in the way, there's <laughs> driving to shows and, and such like that, and then, or family obligations, which is fine. And, and then, but, but some, some days, if I, I don't feel creative at all, then I don't make anything. Or I'll get out the sketchbook and look at one of those designs that reminds me of something. I either make that idea or I design something else. And then other times I just, the idea occurs to me and I start working at it and pretty Pretty soon, or maybe a few weeks later, I actually have a, an interesting idea, an interesting design. It's rare that the design starts off crystallizing my mind, and then it actually comes out looking exactly like I what I had in mind. Occasionally, I've got a few pieces that 
they came out exactly as I envisioned them when I first thought them. So, it, and I, I don't know how other artists do it. Um, did you have, so you got your first gym cutting kit, you said it around age seven. Was there like a big art influence growing up or was that something that, you know, like maybe you saw on the shelves somewhere and you really just, you wanted to learn how to cut gym. So like that's something that you asked for. What was the initial desire for that kit in particular? I must have, you know, I, I, I can't really remember. I, I think there was some influential people probably when I was four or five. I think my mom had a, a friend or uh, somebody that she knew who was a geologist that may have given me a pebble or I might just have tripped over it and then became fascinated with it. I, I don't really remember. I was so young. I don't know. Hmm. And then how did, at what point did that kind of turn into more of like an art and the expression of like these grander pieces that you're doing, you know, nowadays? Well, it turned into an interest in, and a curiosity in the world around me. And once you're curious, you start checking out things, you know, a natural form, a crystal, other artwork, museums, uh, aerial views, satellite shots, uh, stuff from a, under a microscope, uh, atomic structure. I mean, the list goes on. You just get curious and then you start looking at things. If I was to turn the question around just to illustrate the process, not to make you uncomfortable, but how did you get interested in doing an interview. You know, obviously you're a conversationalist. You have you like to speak with people, you like to ask questions and and, and how you know how, how does anybody's interest in something start? And, and again, I'm not I'm just turning it around to illustrate a, a process of what gets somebody's interested. Hmm. No, I mean I think that's a fair way and an interesting way to flip the coin and and think about it from a different perspective of making it relatable for someone of how they got into anything, which, yeah, is very interesting to think about. I don't think I thought about it like that before. So I guess another question, like you are an artist, and I assume maybe you get asked this question a lot, could be wrong, but what does art mean to you if you had to either describe it with words or like describe a feeling, what would you say? Oh, well, when you can see the light come on in somebody's eyes after they viewed something that you made with your own hands, there's no feeling like that. I, I don't even know how to describe it, but you know, you, you re, you know, you reach out and you're touching or at the risk of being crude, seducing somebody's artistic sensibility, you know, based on whatever that person's artistic influences and experiences have been up to that point in their life. And that's the acid test right there. I mean, somebody, I mean, oh my God, there's one, one guy in uh, Park City, Utah came along and he was shuffling his feet and he was not happy and frowning and having a bad day. And somehow his, he, he, he managed to look above the, the level of where his feet were and my work caught his eye. And he went from hangdog expression to just to, uh, the world was misery to absolute pure delight and, 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 and stayed in my booth for eight or nine minutes. And I never spoke to the man. I actually left my booth, walked across the street, and just watched him react. And he walked off, happiest guy in the world. 
I didn't see him later in the day, so I don't know how the rest of his day went, but at least for that few minutes, whatever it was, and whatever his background was, something just reached out and touched that guy. And yeah, I mean, you know, how do you quantify that in dollars? You can't. Yeah, that's that's pretty powerful. That's very cool to to have that. And I've had, I mean, that's the one that I remember and that I can articulate the best. But there's been every show that happens at least once or twice, not necessarily as dramatic as this one man. But. Was that part of like the initial desire to want to create more? Like once you started to have your work in shows and you were able to interact with with customers and just passer buyers, like you were able to see the actual impact. And so did that kind of inspire you to want to create more and want to be at more of these shows? Absolutely. It is. And it was very surprising for me that that was such a critical part of it because I've normally not really needed a pat on the back. I've always been an independent person and, you know, people say, oh, that's nice. You know, I'm just like, yeah, whatever, you know, I don't care. But, but surprisingly, I mean, it, it influenced my choice of medium. Now, I'm doing fairly large aluminum pieces now. Well, two feet high, two foot wide. It's, they're not huge. It's not like a bronze moose or something. I mean, it's but it's, you know, it's bigger than a gemstone. And when, when you sell a piece of jewelry, the person wearing it thinks it's great. But, you know, nobody really gets to see it like a more public piece, like a sculpture. In that, I kind of envy musicians or writers or even video producers such as yourself where you're going to have an audience of a lot of people who get to, to see or hear something but that that sure that feedback influenced my choice of medium because in sculpture you get that positive response on a, on a much larger scale than i got gem cutting and then yeah well almost seems like with with like your art in particular, and it's more of an intimate experience rather than, you know, with what I'm doing or with like what a lot of other people is like, yeah, sure, it can touch a lot of people and maybe it'll have a huge impact, but at the same time, like yours, um, just briefly like going off of what you had just described about the man who saw your artwork, like there's this profound, like brief or prolonged experience and impact that your artwork can have on someone's life. And if they choose to, you know, place that in their house or place of work or something, they have an interaction with it on a daily basis. And maybe it changes form depending on what they need at that moment in time or, or what's going on in their lives. And so I think there's something very unique about that aspect of, as well of, of having it as kind of like a constant reminder and you know, it's not speaking to you, like you directly interpret whatever you want based off of this piece of artwork that is sitting there. Mm -hmm. It is intimate. Um, and the intimacy occurs in a person's eyes. And it's something I can see from a distance. And, and that's, if, it's, it's a person with their own artistic sensibilities. And I'm not really sure what's close to that you know it's you appeals to somebody's artistic sensibilities sure when i sold medical equipment i mean we equipped a bunch of hospitals in africa we saved lives or my equipment did i didn't i wasn't there but the physicians using it did and that's good i mean we equipped you know after a hospital get wiped out in haiti or dominican republic or guiana or wherever in a natural disaster earthquake uh, hurricane, whatever, you know, sure. We're, and it would be a busy day at the office and we'd start, we'd start loading up containers and sending it to them. And that, and that was nice. And I was glad to help out with different things around the world, but it's, it, 
in some way it wasn't as rewarding as watching somebody look as somebody looking at art. In some, there was another time, a woman in Golden, Colorado, she comes up and says, looking and she's looking and she's looking. And it was a warm day, a woman was very elderly. And I, you know, I thought, is she having like heat stroke or something? And, and um, well, I mean, she's looking, she wasn't moving, you know. Okay, so the medical training kicked in, you know, I've been around enough hospitals, it's like, okay, look for the signs of heat stroke. I know, and no, and she goes, this stuff's beautiful. I go, oh, well, thank you. And she goes, no, you don't understand what I mean. I'm old. I'm 96. I've been looking at artwork for a long time. My husband was a machinist for 60 years who passed recently, and he never, ever did anything as nice as what I'm looking at right now. He tried all his life, and he never got there. And I was just like, I didn't even know what to say. Another time, a woman in Breckenridge, they wanted a piece. It was too expensive. They were going to come back and look at another one. They walked away. They came back a second time. Still wanted this one piece too expensive. They walked away. I moved the piece to the front and center. And they finally made it. They came back a third time, wanted to buy it. And they looked at where it was and they saw a a, 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 a hole on the, the wall, you know, blank spot on the wall. And they started crying. And I'm like, oh my God. Uh, no, no, no. I just moved it. I moved it. And they're like, oh, thank God. So, and then she walked away holding this thing, clutched to her. I, I don't know, again, I don't know what, what happened with the rest of their day or their life or what, what, you know, but I mean, reach out and touch somebody like that. That's what makes it worthwhile. That's why I don't like museum shows or gallery shows. And I'm trying, next week I start an online show sponsored by a art museum in Bellevue, Washington, Seattle to benefit them and a few other of, of their nonprofit works. And you don't get feedback. I mean, I did a museum show uh, at a facility in Boulder sp sponsored by the National Science Foundation. That's all great, you know, but you come, came, you know, you, you go and you hang up your work and come back six weeks later and you pull it down and yeah, okay. I mean, so what? Didn't get to, didn't really get to see anybody's reactions. So. What's the actual process of getting into a museum, a gallery or, or an art show? Like, do you have to have some sort of following? Do you submit? Do they reach out to you? What's that like? It can be a little bit of both. If I recall the Boulder show, the director of the museum happened to stumble across my artwork because I was at a show elsewhere in Boulder, which she never goes to, but I think she needed a cup of coffee. So she was in the Starbucks and happened to wander by. And she goes, well, here, we'll, we'll, we'll show your work. You know, she gives me a card. I didn't really pay attention to it. And then she called me like five weeks later. And then I was like, yeah, I got your card around here somewhere. I don't know. You know, she goes, well, why don't you check it out and give me a call back? So I Google her. It's like, oh, National Science Foundation, NCAR, National Center of Atmospheric Research. Oh, down the hall from the world's third largest supercomputer. Oh, yeah, maybe I ought to go do that, you know. And um, I'm glad I did because that's led to other things. So. Hmm. And then like, is it more important like in, in this day and age to have an online following as well in order to, like if someone were to make a full-time living as an artist, would that be important? A good question. I'll avoid answering it with a small story that explains why I'm probably the wrong guy to answer it. When I started my medical business, um, this is, there, there was a time before Google. I know it's, it's kind of seems like it's not possible, but at the time, the popular, there were about 60 popular search engines. I think the largest was called Alta Vista. 
Google hadn't really come of age yet. And, and then Google took over. And for the first eight or nine years for the term used medical equipment, we were number one worldwide. So you put, I put something on my website, it would sell. Put something on my website, it would sell. Very powerful for business. That's why I was able in a hundred, you know, hundred plus countries. Having said that, I made my money online, so I don't really feel the need to do that. Anymore. And my artwork, I want to see the. Res- I want to see people, so I can't really get that online. That pro- that viewpoint is probably at odds with what would make a successful business. I mean, online you get all kinds of reach versus one on one at a show. You know, at an art show, I'm just going to be talking to whoever's standing there. Versus online, you know, it's all over. So. And my, test market will, my test market will start next week, courtesy of the Bellevue Art Museum. Or July 17th, I think, is when that online, that show goes online. Yeah, yeah, next, end of next week. So, and if I sell out, then, well, maybe I'll have a different answer for you if you talk to me in six months. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Are you creating multiples of the same pieces or do you create one and then you're done? One and done. One and done. Why? you already done something. Why, why duplicate it? You know, there's enough ideas. I'm never going to live long enough to make all of them. So occasionally I will do a second one in a series, but it's not a copy. It's something different about it. And then how did, how did you make the transition to the medium that you're doing now with these bigger two by twos roughly and from starting off and, and gym cutting and kind of taking that and, and exploring at what point did you decide that you were going to change mediums or was it kind of, you just got curious again. And so you decided to take that curiosity and transport it into what you're doing now. Oh, it was a, a it's an evolution, a you know, curiosity. I, I learned the techniques that I have, starting to learn the techniques because I was doing some metal stamping for jewelry. And then, then I was cutting jade. And then I had a complicated jade carving. One piece that I did, I think, took seven months. I did a mock-up in aluminum that took about a week or so. And it came out looking pretty good in aluminum. You know, aluminum cuts much faster than jade does. And then seven months later, I got the jade piece done. And I'm sitting there looking at them side by side. And the jade was okay. It wasn't great. And the aluminum wasn't great, but it was pretty good. It looked a lot better than the jade did. And that's a week. And this is seven months, you know. So it's like, hmm. And the jade was just, it was okay. It wasn't, I still have that piece in a closet somewhere. But I just, it was okay. It wasn't great. Seven months? Why did it take seven months to complete? Jade carves slowly. It's a rock. You got to carve it slowly. You're working subtractively. So you take it away. You can't put it back. So you don't make any mistakes Hmm. or you try not to make mistakes. Or if you think you might have a mistake, you need a plan for recovering. Otherwise you have a hole where there's not supposed to be. It looks like it. But if you have three holes, they look balanced. So it looks like it was supposed to be there. So really, so I was going to just kind of to carry off of that would, would be like, so would you like plan a cut or cuts based off of like what you see on the surface today? And then you have to like completely reassess in order to make the next cuts. It can be if you hit a fracture or something, larger pieces can be more problematic than smaller pieces. They take longer. 
I mean, you know, think of something, gee, that piece was about a foot square, as I remember, and about five inches. When I started about about four inches thick, and when I stopped working on it, it was about two and a half inches thick. So that needed to be ground away. And carving's really a grind, on jade's a, a grinding process. A small piece, jewelry size, you know, half inch square, whatever you'd wear as a pendant, you know, you're not gonna put a five pound pendant on, maybe it weighs half an ounce, third of an ounce, something like that. Those go quicker because there's less to, less work to do. How do people get into like using this type of machinery in order to perform, to create this type of art? Like is get, getting these smaller kits the best way to do it? Or is it like taking, you know, community or school courses? Like how do you best advise people who are interested in this avenue? Well, I, over the years, just cause I've been at it for so long, I probably know 30 or 35 different metalworking and gem cutting techniques. I'm not really sure how many I know, but you know, you learn one technique every year, or every second year, you know, stay out of 50 years, eventually you know something. Strangely, the one technique that I know nothing about is welding, which is one of the more common steelworking techniques, you know, welding, I mean, repairing cars, sculptors use welding, but I've never tried it. I've, I've used gold and silver and titanium and gold on steel and a few other complicated things, but it, just never tried welding. To answer your question, I would say just start, see something that interests you and don't be afraid to experiment. And when you start something, you know, the, 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 one of the common things that I've heard is, well, just make each piece the best you can be. And I would say for the first and the second pieces, make the nastiest thing you can. You're gonna screw it up. You don't know anything. Don't worry about it. It's a test. Try, don't, don't start with, you know, a $10,000 gemstone. You start with a 50 cent pebble. If you screw it up, so what? And go to a 75 cent pebble, you know? And, and some of my best ideas have been made in scrap metal or in scrap stones where, you, because you're not at all intimidated by the material, it didn't cost anything. Who cares if you screw it up? So you, you feel free to experiment. And that right there is, an art to, is uh, key for being artistic. At what point did you feel like an artist or did you always feel like an artist? Well, I always felt like a craftsperson, but until I saw the look on somebody's eyes, when a piece that I had made it reached out and touched somebody, that's when I felt like an artist. And in that case, it was actually a jade carving, but somebody telling me about it about a year after they had seen it and it still stuck with them in their mind's eye and it caused them to stop walking. And you could see that this had really made an impression on somebody. On somebody. And when I say make an impression, you know, I, I'm trying to get somebody's positive artistic sensibilities. It's different than shock value, you know, wearing a Oh, you know, you can do it through bizarre photography. I don't mean to be disparaging about other art forms, but you know, doing getting something shocking from a negative point of view because it's startling is probably easier to do than a positive response. One question you had asked earlier that I managed to talk around and not answer, amongst others, I'm sure, but was how to get in an art show. Part of the process for me that helped crystallize my work and make it better is start applying to art shows because you have to show photographs and then you have to give a you know 100 word or 50 word sentence of well what are you trying to achieve with your artwork 
you know, and then you have to describe that in two or three sentences. And it's the hardest two or three sentences somebody will ever write and rewrite. I've been, I think I've filled out maybe, I'm going to say about 150 show applications and I've been accepted to maybe 70 of them and I've maybe 100 of them and I've displayed at maybe 35 or 40. And I still struggle with those couple of sentences. This after seven years and I've been doing it a while. But you have to show, you know, out of all your works that you've done, what are your top three? Show your top three pictures. Could you pick out of your 70 plus interviews, could you pick your top three? You know, or give me the 90 seconds of your best video. Where do you start? You know, I mean, you know, where would you start? You know, <laughs> I mean. So how do you decide what's the most important information to condense about your artwork into that, you know, short blurb? Well, it, it forces you to get to the essence of what you're doing. Which was be, and it, yeah. And it's like, okay, what, well, what are you doing? You know, I mean, well, it's like, oh crap, what am I doing? Well, what am I trying to do? Am I trying to be aluminum? Am I just trying to be big? Am I trying to be better than a gemstone? What is it you're trying to do? And then actually think about it and you do enough shows, you realize, oh, I'm trying to reach out and touch somebody. And that's what I'm trying to do. Stimulate their thinking. It's about them. It's not about me. So, and if my, if something I made can do that, great, then I'm an artist. And if it doesn't do it, then I'm not an artist. I'm just a craftsperson. Do you think everyone's creative? No, I would say everybody has the potential to be, but a lot of people tell themselves they can't do that. Or I, I could do that, but blah, fill in the blank, you know? Oh, I could have done that except blah, you know, fill in the blank. So people need to get out of their own way. You could do that. Yeah, well, sure. I could. Okay. Do it. Talk to me next year. You know, I hear that at, boot, at the shows a lot. I could do that. And sometimes people will come back and they'll say, I did it. I did it. a year later. I don't remember what it was we were talking about. And they're like, I, I made a piece. Oh, great. You know, and they'll show me a photograph of it. And you know, it's like, okay, that's the first piece, you know, or that's number five. And then, that uh, one time I was at an art show 20 or 25 years ago and somebody, one of the artists said, oh, well, sounds like you have some good ideas. Maybe we'll see you out here one day. And sure enough, one day, there I am. So, but some people are not creative or they, they haven't learned to get out of their own way, I should say. Hmm. I feel Everybody. like, yeah, what, keep going. Go oh, I was going to say that I feel like a lot of people that I tend to talk to, especially younger people, is they associate creativity with very strict standards. Like you're either creative if you can draw, quote unquote, like if you can draw my face and it looks exactly like my face, or if you can sing or you can dance or something like they interpret creativity based off of these like preset standards, I think. And, and to me, it seems like if they can't fit in that box, then therefore they automatically dictate themselves as not being creative which they just haven't explored like other mediums or how they could take that creativity and kind of mesh it with a way that is important or allows them to kind of tell stories or take those ideas from their head and, and put them into the world in a way that's like true to them. I, I would say that same, same, question or the same uh, same thing did, did their work reach out and to touch somebody in a positive way 
and you know if if a song sticks in somebody's head and causes them to be poetic or you know give their wife some flowers or you know whatever causes them to do or influence political thinking well i i would guess that or or however music influences our lives and i would say that they're an artist and if it's just music that is forgotten with no lingering thoughts uh, within an, uh, 10 minutes, then they're, they're just uh, guitar players. If a video interview, you know, same thing, does it influence somebody? And, and somebody doesn't necessarily need to, be, need to be able to remember the name of the artist or the, the name of the interviewer or videographer. Um, you know, but if that influences somebody, then, you know, yeah, then you've done your job as a, as a videographer. We all, we, we all, almost everybody has cell phones now, which means we all have video cameras. Does that make them video? Does that, does that make them qualified to interview somebody? I don't know. Show me one of your better interviews. You know, yeah, if it was a good interview and readers left with an impression, yeah, sure. Then you're, then you're, um, then you're a, a video, then you're a qualified interviewer. Now market distribution and marketing, that, that's a different subject, but it's like, yeah, I saw that. Okay, I remember it. Yeah, so. Six or eight weeks ago, a woman showed me a photograph of one of her works in a coffee shop in Texas. Well, I'm not an artist. I'm not an artist. And I looked at the photograph and I could, after looking at it for half or three quarters of a second, it stuck with me enough that I could probably reproduce it with a pencil sketch. Not that I'm trying to steal her idea, but it's like, well, that made an impression on me. I can remember it a couple of months later. And I don't remember much. I've seen a lot of artwork. I've, I've seen thousands of paintings in, in many museums, plus a lot of art shows. So if, if it stuck with me, yes, ma'am, you're an artist, you know. You're an artist. Awesome. I like that. That is very cool. All right. So I have about four final questions for you as, okay. we, as we wrap up. The first of which is, if you had a book written about you, what would the title of the book be? I have no idea. <laughs> Absolutely that none. The, that is what the title of the book would be. Okay. All right. And and because you have no idea, you need to go learn something about whatever your subject is. So that would be the title. Hmm. All right. The next one is if you had 24 hours to live, unlimited money, and could travel any way up the snap of your fingers and bring whoever you wanted. What would you do? Well, as a, a person gets to be my age, it's, it's not necessarily so theoretical a question. You have to start thinking about, you know, you've got limited time left and what would you do? Obviously, there's limited funds because that's how life is. I would keep learning. So whatever it is that would cause me to keep learning something. All right. And the next is would mark at... 8, 10, 12, whatever age you want to pick, kind of around that time frame, would he be happy with where you are now and what you're doing? He would have no idea who I was. <laughs> <laughs> because, well, well, actually, he would have half of an idea of part. It's part of the childhood dream of becoming a trained mining engineer. I got that part, and I'm still gem cutting. So yeah, he, he would probably recognize at least half of what I'm doing. So the other half would be, where'd that come from? <laughs> be a surprise for down the road. That's cool. The last one is what do you want to accomplish either personally, professionally, and or both in the next six months? Well, keep influencing people. I've got a grandchild on the way. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they're 
all is well there. And if I can get those two done, that'd be great. Awesome. Best grandchild's more important than all the rest of it. <laughs> My two takeaways from my conversation with Mark are, first, curiosity is the ultimate driver of life. Beauty unfolds when you follow it. It may be ugly and treacherous and hard, so hard at first to figure out how to get to the root of that curiosity, but curiosity is like the winding staircase, if you think of it like that, you know. The more you explore and the more ideas that you connect, the further down you'll go and you'll reach the core of your curiosity, whatever, whatever it may be. And the beauty is allowing yourself to go down there and to figure out what it is you're trying to say, why you're interested in this, and then how you can interpret it for the outside world, whether that's through writing or through artwork or creating some product. The second is creating artwork is as much for your own blood, sweat, and tears as it is for the enjoyment and appreciation of others. It's not a one-sided venture. Artists create for themselves, but they also create for others, hoping that the other person looking at it, whether just in passing or someone who chooses to purchase it, takes something away from this piece of work or sculpture it's the idea of a shared story or an interpretation and knowing that you made someone else feel a certain way, whether it was the way that you intended or it was a completely different way. You made them feel something and you had an impact on their story and that's pretty powerful. 